Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the increasingly occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on October 26, 2018. I have some notable guests for a notable event. Y.Y. Brandon Chan, Assistant Professor at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law Common Law Section. Brietta Clark, Associate Dean for Faculty and Professor of Law, Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Meda McLouf, who's Assistant Professor of Law and Director of the Medical Legal Partnership at Penn State Dickinson. Uh, welcome, Y.Y. and Meta, and welcome back, Bree. So yes, noticeable guests all, but why is this a notable event? Well, first, this is the earliest ever Twill recording. It's dark and it's 7.30 in the morning here. Second, and the explanation for this horrible recording time, uh, today in Indianapolis we have our annual health law symposium and our topic is the intersection of health care and immigration policy. In about an hour I'll be kicking things off by introducing our keynote speaker, the great Wendy Palmet, and then we have an amazing group of speakers to follow, including my guests here. So if you hear the sounds of multiple cups of coffee being drunk, you'll know why. We've structured the day's agenda for the conference around four broad issues, the healthcare rights of newcomers, the impact of immigration policy on healthcare systems and delivery, newcomer rights, including human rights, and obviously uh, a public health perspective. I'm sure we could come up with still more frames. I mean, there's, there's got to be a criminal enforcement sanctuary city kind of frame and so on. But let's start by, I don't know, trying to get something of an overview of where people, what people are thinking about here. And and why, why to, to pick on you as um, as a visitor from uh, Canada and as mm -hmm. someone who doesn't necessarily have a horse in our race, mm -hmm. um, maybe you can give us something of a sort of 5,000 mm -hmm. feet overview about health inequities and marginalized groups such as immigrants, which I know is a, a lot of the work that, that you do. Right. So, I mean, yes, that my work does situate um, between international migration and health, and I usually take um, a health equity um, lens to, to, this, uh, to this issue. It's somewhat of a debate to say that migrants or newcomers to a, to a country experience significant amount of challenges when they, you know, not just not just after they arrive, but, you know, throughout the migration process, right? And so really, um, for, for me anyway, when I'm approaching this topic of migrant health, I try to take a more holistic approach to see what is the health issue, right, that my arrays um, prior to even uh, the migrants setting foot, right, um, mm -hmm. and whether it's United States or Canada or whatever the destination country is. And then what are some of the, the, the issues that we need to look at when we're looking at admitting people <laughs> into um, our, our um, countries? And, you know, what might be um, some of the practices that are not really supported Right by evidence when we are quote unquote screening migrants, and then you know after um, they're in a the country in terms of supporting their settlement, what is what's the role that healthcare uh, play? Right, in addition to just alleviate um, suffering and pain, right, it also fosters their their um, belonging in the society, right. Um, especially you know, speaking from a Canadian context, if we think of healthcare as something that people simply just have a right to, right. If you single a certain group of people out as not having healthcare, that sends a signal of them being an outsider, right. And so that's you know my approach to healthcare um, in the migrant context kind of touch on those issues. Issues. Um, and I, you know, I hope that you know that's kind of the approach that we should all take 
um, in, in addressing this issue. So I guess, Meta, I'm guessing that resonated with you, right? Because that that right no right dichotomy um, then creates your your path dependency to an extent going on from that. Yes, very much. So this is interesting. You know, you talked when you began talking why why you were uh, discussing you know the the many obstacles that non citizens have to face when they come to the country that are related to healthcare rights or you know um, health and well being more generally. So um, the topic of my presentation today is the public charge law and really the proposed um, changes to the regulations about public charge that were released by the administration on October 10th. Um, so this is very current. And, you know, I was interested in this topic because in my work in the Medical Legal Partnership Clinic, I've seen the chilling effect that rumors of this proposed change to the regulations, which have been swirling since January 2017, um, have created on the non-citizen clients who we serve. So lots of people who won't actually be affected, uh, directly affected by the public charge regulations, people like naturalized citizens, um, folks who've already become uh, lawful permanent residents, refugees and asylees who are exempt from the public charge regulation, are afraid of accessing the public benefits that um, support their health. So I think... uh for, for listeners who, who maybe aren't too familiar with the, the public charge idea, this is uh, a proposal or it could well lead this policy to the denial of green cards to legal immigrants who are low-wage workers who are considering use of benefits that low-wage folks get in this country, including SNAP, TANF, Medicaid, CHIP, and uh, only recently did I realize it would probably extend to ACA um, exchange subsidies, you know, which really sort of turns things on its head. The California Healthcare Foundation Research Group recently, I think last week, published a uh, an analysis of the proposal, and they are estimating a range of between 700,000 and 1.7 million children who are likely to be disenrolled from Medicaid and CHIP. Or, and, 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 CHIP. and I think they think that may be an underestimate. Yeah. If I'm right, that that was the um, research based on the chilling effect of other welfare reform in yep. the past, right. and kind of the During nature the of the cli- exactly, so but the nature of kind of what's going on in this climate. Um, they think it could even be much more. Right. And if I can just clarify one thing as well. So um, in the current proposed um, regulations, you know, it's actually a more moderate change than what was proposed in drafts that were previously released. Uh, you know, most recently, I think the March um, draft leaked <laughs> proposed regulations was particularly harsh and did include all kinds of uh, public benefits. The actual, the officially released draft is a little bit more moderate in that the public benefits that are going to be considered, that are proposed to be considered for public charge determination process, have been limited to very important benefits, but they're limited to. Um, non-emergency Medicaid, uh, a Medicare Part D subsidy for low-income people, Um, all kinds of federal housing assistance and SNAP benefits or food stamps. And so the administration has actually asked for input on whether they should include a broader range of public benefits, specifically CHIP. So, I mean, the scale of this is extraordinary. I mean, I was reading KFF had some recent numbers. There are 26 million non-citizens residing in our country. That's 7% of our population. 
they include both lawfully present and undocumented. Um, and many non-citizens live in mixed status families. Yes. So I assume, is, is there a knock-on effect, Meta? That- yes. And this is actually what I'm particularly interested in. Although I do think that there is going to be you know, significant direct impacts of this uh, proposed policy if it's finalized as written. Um, and by direct impact, I mean that people who will be applying for admission shortly, um, you know, will disenroll from public benefits because they're concerned that will affect th- that it will affect their immigration applications. I'm actually more concerned about the general chilling effect that this will that it will extend to um, all sorts of people who aren't subject to public charge determination. And this is a particular concern in mixed status families. Um, and this is because, you know, in many mixed status families, you have undocumented parents or caregivers who are caring for um, either citizen children or uh, lawfully present children who are eligible for public benefits. The way that um, public benefits eligibility works for immigrants is that children are oftentimes um, eligible for a broader range of yeah. um uh, and more likely to have been lawfully to have been born here, exactly. And therefore, lawfully exactly. entitled, right? But there, you know, there's but it's the parents who control the application for benefits, and so right. if they're concerned that somehow applying for benefits will get back to them and um, potentially lead to their uh, forced removal from the country, um, you know, that this in the long term is not a risk that they're willing to take. So I guess at the moment, if for the undocumented segment, the the in most states we're going to come to brief for a ray of sunshine in a moment. Um, but in 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 most states, uh, care is going to be a few community health centers and emergency rooms. And I'm assuming there is already fear and trepidation about there being an ice patrol lurking yes. near the ED. Yes, um, we're actually partnered with a federally qualified um, health center in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and um, there you know. They don't ask about immigration status when people come to these FQHCs. Um, they serve a range of immigrants with status, without status. But there has been, you know, we've had questions from some of our clients about, you know, we're applying for naturalization, about whether they should, in fact, apply for a family member uh, right. for benefits. So it is it is very real. And this was prior to the rule actually being proposed on um, yeah. October 10th. So, Brie, I think there's some interesting sort of federalism kind of at work here. Um, the federal government has turned its back on newcomers and is now actually seeking to do more than merely turn its back. Um, but, you know, sanctuary cities have not. And so that's sort of one weird little piece. And then when it comes to healthcare access, um, so long basically as you're not spending federal dollars, states have sort of relative freedom. And I wonder if you could sort of flesh out sort of the legal basis for that sort of dichotomy state to state and, and maybe then talk a little bit about what California does. Yeah, well, so um, um, kind of along healthcare uh, lines, whether it's the private exchanges or um, public benefits, um, you know, there is this federal state partnership that um, uh, looks different in almost every state uh, for Medicaid. Um, there's federal funding, state funding that gets joined together. There are some federal baselines, but a lot of state flexibility. Um, and even with the exchanges, there to the extent to which a state really takes control of the exchange and regulates content of plans, you'll see variation from state to state there too. Um, 
And so California is one of those states that really um, has tried to go further than the federal government requires in a whole host of ways. Um, but we are seeing this as well at the inter uh, kind of intersection of immigration policy and health law. Um, so, for example, our uh, version, our state version of Medicaid is called Medi-Cal in California, um, where the federal government gives states an option to cover certain uh, categories of non-citizens. And there are some options where you can cover them with federal match. Mm -hmm. California does it. Where, uh, for some categories of folks who are excluded from federal Medicaid, California covers them anyway with state-only funds. Um, but not all. So we do still have a number of undocumented uh, folks who are not covered in California. So that's that, too, is an ongoing conversation. Um, How is that segment pulled out? So, <laughs> so um, using some uh, kind of complicated uh, categories of different sorts of non-citizens. So um, in short, at the federal level for Medicaid, certain groups are considered qualified for Medicaid. So those are folks that states can cover if they want and get federal matching funds, like lawful permanent residents, LPRs. Um, so California covers them. There's still a bar. So they're only covered once uh, they've been here for five years. California has decided to go further, cover them once as soon as they're here. So for that first five-year period, they're here, state-only funds, right? Then there are people who are considered not uh, qualified under federal law. They do not have satisfactory immigration status for federal coverage. California divides those groups up, and some of those they cover. So the, the kind of broad uh, category label that's given is per, uh, uh, persons permanently residing under color of law, PRUCAL. Um, and there is a whole list of categories that might include folks deferred action status, for example, so yeah. DACA. Um, folks who um, maybe applying for LPR status, so they're temporary right now, but but they're trying to go through the lawful process, will we'll cover with state-only funds for Medi-Cal. Um, and then there's this other, so there are a bunch of other categories, but the one other one I'll highlight is this catch-all where you may not be documented, but the enforcement authorities, they know about you. You check in regularly, but they're not planning to deport you. So if you can show evidence of that, California will cover you. Um, but there's still a whole lot of folks um, who don't fit in that category. Um, so California has its is been going through its own struggle to figure out for the undocumented folks who don't fit in those categories, can we do more to expand coverage for them? We just did it in the last couple of years for children. So now all children covered regardless of status, but we're still having that conversation uh, with adults. We've got a county indigent system that fills in here and there, but mm -hmm. that gets complicated too. <laughs> so uh, YY, I, I read an opinion piece uh, you and a co-author did a, a year or so ago about refugee rights in Canada mm -hmm. and the relative sort of lack of information there was um, and the piece sort of I think to put words in your mouth sort of called for more public education about the ability uh, to, to uh, access these services and I guess a question to you all is um, what is the information gap here uh, not only with regard to sort of these new enforcement issues and so on but also the availability of services for right. newcomers. Well, I, you know, I, that's actually a great um, question, just because that you know builds quite well onto what Bree were just saying. Um, the the refugee healthcare system in Canada is separate and apart from 
um, the regular healthcare system mm -hmm. for, for <clears throat> all the other folks. Um, and that program is called the Interim Federal Health Program. Um, it, it was set up in the 1995 and it worked quite, you know, relatively well until around 2012, when then the federal government decided to, to cur curb back um, who's qualified, right? In a way, that's very much, um, you know, in a stratified way, very much similar to what we just heard from Bree, right? So it's based on who they believe is more of a deserving asylum seeker as opposed to those who they afraid or you know claim to be asylum seeker but not not truly so right and so so then you know it used to be that it's just one program for everybody if you qualify you get the same thing but then between so from 2012 onwards to around 2016 before the policy was changed once more they create all these different categories then it becomes very confusing for health service providers to figure out who's covered and how much they're covered right under which category mm -hmm. and so a lot of times people just kind of gave up and say I, I can't serve this population, um, and so so that's the education piece that we that that comes in, right? So not only during the years of cuts, but then since the cuts has been re so being removed and the program being reinstated in 2016, back to what it was prior to 2012, it, there is ongoing need for education, right? To tell service providers, for example, what they actually you know um, need to do, right? When people show up, who they should. Actually provide health care to um, and also to to um, refugees and um, asylum seekers themselves right to kind of educate them look you are entitled to certain services right and what what we're afraid of is going back um, to matter your your um, what you're saying before in terms of mixed uh, status family for example right you know sometimes you know one status under the, pr the, the, the program that was cut one says might disqualify parents, but still allow the um, child to access healthcare, but that's no longer so, right? So you need to kind of tell um, those parents, for example, that, you know, everyone's qualified now, you know, please do take your child to go see a doctor. And so that's the education piece that we're talking about. And so, you know, there we're talking about, you know, changes in, even in terms of entitlement, not necessarily leading to actual access on the ground, unless you do something more, right? Unless you tell people, first of all, about entitlement and trying to do other things to support that access. Um, this is so interesting, YY. It's been um, a subject that I've really wanted to explore and learn more about, so thank you for okay. <laughs> discussing this. But um, I'm curious to know if um, the, the package of benefits that refugees receive under this separate program is comparable to the benefits that a Canadian citizen or somebody would receive? It is comparable. Um, it's actually, well, the reason why it was cut was because the argument at the time was that it's actually too generous um, in comparison to what other Canadians receive. Mm -hmm. Because what, in addition to what usually, um, you know, Canadian residents would receive under the, the other program, um, the interim federal health program also provided um, asylum seekers um, such benefits as medication coverage, mm -hmm. um, access to um, certain long-term care facilities, and also coverage for eye and dental care, which a lot of Canadians do not have, right? And but that is comparable in the sense that these are the same package that um, a low-income Canadian will receive through social assistance program. Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, it's you know, who do you compare it to, right? Do you compare it to just you know regular folks, or do you compare it to um, people who in need um, of social assistance? Who you know, sometimes we argue, well, because these are asylum seekers, they're new to the country, and oftentimes they're come coming from a uh, 
a relatively marginalized background that, that they might do need additional support, right? And so that was the rationale. Um, so I hope that yeah. explains. No, I think the health delivery mechanism that's used um, to coordinate care is crucial here because it is incredibly confusing. So um, for somebody just trying to understand these different categories and what's covered, it's it, it's very complicated. But for somebody who's just on the ground and needs care, they really can't be expected to figure this out. And many of the providers are busy just trying to provide care. Um, one of the things, again, that California helps to show is kind of a diversity in terms of approach. So we have a couple of places uh, like San Francisco through its Healthy San Francisco and Los Angeles County through My Health LA, where they have a model. Um, first of all, they do not ask about immigration status for indigent folks. So as long as you fit some basic criteria of kind of income and kind of uh, residency within that county, um, you can get access to services, whether or not you're kind of documented, whatever your status. The thing that makes it particularly um, a model of success is the fact that they actually assign people to a medical home mm -hmm. where care is coordinated and they administer the payments and so providers know exactly what to do. There's just a lot more certainty. There's a more robust provider network. Um, it, you know, it, uh, how well we get access uh, or how well we get care and deliver care to our non-citizens is really going to be based on our commitment to care generally for our population. I mean, those things are absolutely intertwined. In the counties in California where we do not see a robust to commitment to a public safety net, those tend to also be counties where you hear a lot of rhetoric that does not want to extend access to immigrants, right? So these things truly are intertwined, right? The, the, the kind of basic view of kind of health as a right and as a core principle of justice for any individual will be the lens through which you will also see this issue. But more importantly, on the ground, it actually matters for, for how well people can access care. As we've become far more um, sensitive to social determinants of health, as we've come to understand the desperate need our fragmented healthcare system has for providing wraparound services, and homes, health homes, and, and coordination, and so on. A lot of people have talked about um, the medicalization of poverty, right? That because we don't have good safe safety nets in this country, that we should essentially use primarily the Medicaid program, but but chip elsewhere and so on, um, to to try and deal with some of these issues. And there's some really interesting arguments on both sides. I heard Bill Sage give a great presentation uh, on the anti side, saying, "No, let's address poverty. Let's not try and medicalize it." But I wonder what we're seeing over the last couple of years is almost sort of the opposite effect whereby healthcare or access to healthcare is sort of being weaponized and that, that for example in the work requirement provisions that so many states including Indiana uh, have got 1115 waivers on your your the punishment for not doing something is we take away your healthcare mm -hmm. and i wonder whether there's a similar kind of strain here in the immigration uh, area in that you know we're going to punish you for not being like some idealistic model of white America, and we're going to punish you for, for that status by taking away your health care. 
Yeah, I, so I, I definitely think that has been going on. Um, we see that going on. And again, uh, to, just to be kind of own up to our full kind of um, diversity in California, we see it in California in some counties too. So um, so that, that national conversation we do have in many places there. Um, I think what's interesting is, and um, so I'm aware of this debate about are we medicalizing poverty? How do we deal with it? I think um, the, the piece that's been coming out of all this literature that's so helpful is the connection, right? The relationship between all of these various determinants of health and healthcare access. And so one of the interesting things that we've seen is this idea of punishing certain groups because they don't look enough like us or do things that we think are like us, in quotes. <laughs> you know, it has clearly backfired in ways that are now, um, uh, we see certain counties who were, did not want to provide healthcare access to undocumented uh, uh, residents, they're now figuring out with the expansion of the ACA and some other things, if they don't provide uh, reimbursement or have a system to provide reimbursement for care, that actually depletes resources from the infrastructure that impacts everyone, right? And so it's just an, it's a, it's a more kind of nuanced and kind of boring detail if you're really into healthcare financing, but it's very similar to the arguments around mixed status families. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying that we should care about this because it impacts others. Um, what I'm saying is for those who have only been focused on those others, understand we're all connected, right? It's it's not just a cliche. It is happening in kind of the details of the everyday, how do we deliver care? And so as an example, the rural county system in uh, California that has not historically covered undocumented residents is now experimenting with a pilot to cover undocumented residents. Why? Because mm -hmm. they need to, mm -hmm. to bring in more providers. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to recognize the punitive rationale that has been offered to curb welfare benefits for immigrants. You know, there has been talk, you know, within this administration and others about encouraging self-deportation among immigrants by making conditions so bad, by making it so difficult to actually live here that folks will leave on their own. You know, there is really no evidence to support this. Um, there's no evidence that immigrants come to this country for our robust, and I'm doing air quotes here, robust um, social safety net. And so it really is misguided. And it leads one to conclude that the main rationale really is punitive. And just a note on this medicalization of poverty. I've, you know, I've followed this. I think it's really uh, interesting theme. You know, one of the reasons why some folks are, I think are in favor of it is that it's practical in many ways. Healthcare is where the money is. <laughs> And so um, if you can get uh, healthcare dollars to provide housing assistance, to provide nutrition support, why not? Um, in many states and some states, I think, including in California, there have been these pilot projects for food as medicine, mm -hmm. right? And so um, medically specialized meals for people with, um, you know, a wide range of um, medical conditions that would benefit from, you know, having meals delivered to their home that are sort of ready-made or almost ready-made. Who wouldn't benefit from that? <laughs> you know, um, but and and you know these medically tailored meals are being um, provided to folks with extremely common and sort of on a public health level very devastating conditions like type two diabetes and hypertension and. Um, I'm not sure. I haven't really come to the conclusion about whether it's a good or bad thing. I've been following the debates, but I do think it's it's really interesting. 
I just want to offer one comment, um, which is about the um, the piece around the um, using you know, um, the taking away of healthcare as uh, as a punitive measure, right? And I see that I mean here in the United States, but it's it's being used. It's it's a strategy that's deployed around the world, right? It, we see that in Canada, we see that in United Kingdom, and and so on. And you know, I think that I mean, first of all, you know, I agree with Mina that there is not a whole lot of evidence that suggests that these kind of punitive measures work, right? Um, but the point that I want to add is the fact that um, when you know, going back to to the, the the cuts to the refugee healthcare system that we had in Canada back in 2012 part of his ring statement in 2016 was prompted by a constitutional challenge to to the to the cut and at the end of the day um, our federal court ruled that the cut um, to the interim federal health program for the asylum seekers was called a it's, it's a violation of um, our constitution because it's um, it's considered um, a, a treatment that's cruel and unusual Right, and the reason why it's framed as a treatment that's cruel and unusual is because it's used as a punitive measure, right, to punish people for not being a quote-unquote genuine refugee, um, and to use it as a deterrent for for so-called bogus refugees who wants to come, right. And so, so I think you know by shifting our discourse to a more punitive um, kind of um, approach to to healthcare, it actually opens the door for government to to more of a um, legal um, ways to, for for government's um, programs to be challenged illegally, right? And so, so I think you know, I, I, sometimes you know, it's it's. Do I detect a silver lining? <laughs> in the- <laughs> I was going to say that, but well, you know, it, you know, as lawyers, it's hard not to think about well, what can we do, right, to challenge these kind of programs? And it might actually be one of the vulnerabilities of the um, the. Or the civil linings um, for for you know framing healthcare as you know as issue uh, of law and order. Well, let's sort of uh, wind up on that note. Is your glass half empty or half full, Meta, for the <laughs> for the next few years? I think my glass is always half full. I have to be this way. I think in order to do the work that um, we're doing in the medical legal partnership clinic. Um, so I, you know, thank you for providing that silver lining, YY. I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, all of the kind of, uh, you know, open nativism that, you know, the comments of the administration, I mean, it has actually been um, deployed in other lawsuits challenging the immigration crackdown, um, you know, just that a lot of these statements really display an animus towards certain kinds of um, non-citizens in this country. And so I'm really hoping that those challenges are ultimately successful. Um, I so hard because I'm, I'm so nervous about the, the chilling effect of everything that's going on. Um, I think I find my optimism rooted in federalism all the way down. So that is to say, kind of, I see localities, cities, and counties, even in those states that don't seem to want to embrace its immigrants and um, and and is, is not gone as far as California at a state level. We see uh, counties and cities around the country looking to what's happening in California to figure out local solutions. And, and, and by the same token, California at the state level looks really friendly, but when you dig down into counties, we see there's variation. So um, I think uh, there, there is a lot of nuance there, But I, and I feel like California is actually a, not a simplistic success story, but rather it reflects the complicated conversations still mm-hmm. going on across the country. Mm-hmm. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professors Chen, Clark, and Macloof. Uh, Bree, I think you're still resisting the wondrous call of Twitter, aren't you? So. <laughs> yes. 
you'll, you'll just have to go to SSRN and, and read Bree's wonderful work. Uh, but YY, you're on Twitter. Yes, What's I am. your handle? Um, it's just my full name. It's YY Brandon Chen. Okay. And you also have a wonderful website where I you do. link your stuff. Yes. And it's also very simple. It's YYBrandonChen.com. A matter of seeing you pop up on Twitter? Uh, yeah. I'm a relative newbie. So <laughs> I'm still, I, I had to take a moment to think of my Twitter handle, but I believe it's at Meta D. All right. Well, I'll make sure it's in the, um, the show notes. Thank you. Uh, that was so much fun uh, to have you all on the pod. Uh, thanks for joining me. Show notes will be at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs> <laughs>